Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. The CSSG was not a government bailout for the organization, as politicians like Charlie Angus and Pierre Polyev would have you believe. It was not even their idea. Instead, it all started with government bureaucrats looking for a solution and believing we charity with its 25-year track record of engaging youth in service was the solution. I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. Listen as Tafik Rangwala provides us with an inside look at the government dealings before launching the CSSG, starting with the call from Rachel Wernick that changed everything. A Call to Serve On April 19, 2020, a cool and breezy spring day in Toronto, We Charity's 25th anniversary finally rolled around. But it was marked with no fanfare. Ambitious plans to celebrate had been shelved amid tearful goodbyes to long-serving employees. Dramatic repatriations and open questions about when the world would return to anything resembling normal. Craig had little time to reminisce, but on that day, his thoughts turned to how far things had come, from a classroom plea to seventh graders to a charity and social enterprise known around the world. Just then, an early morning email chimed on his phone. As it turned out, that message was the beginning of the end. Now, Craig is not the kind of person who can ignore an email on a Sunday. Things might have turned out differently if he knew how to shut off. But as anyone who knows him will tell you, that is not one of his many strengths. So he picked up the phone and checked. The message was from Rachel Wernick, Senior Assistant Deputy Minister with Employment and Social Development Canada, ESDC. I'm sorry for the out-of-the-blue email on a Sunday morning, she wrote. As you know, there's a lot of quick work going on to support emergency and special measures in the current COVID context. I wondered if you would have a bit of time today to indulge me in a quick conversation on something we are working on that might be of interest to we. There is a window of opportunity today to influence thinking, and I would greatly benefit from your insights. After a brief email exchange, a phone call was scheduled for 12.30 that afternoon. When she and Craig connected, Wernick explained that the federal government was looking to create a youth service program as part of its pandemic social support efforts. Put simply, the government wanted to encourage students who were unable to find summer jobs during COVID to volunteer for nonprofits instead, and they planned to offer grant money to sweeten the pot. It made sense. Jobs were hard to come by, and even volunteer opportunities would be scarce in the virtual COVID world. At the same time, many nonprofits had positions available but struggled to connect with young people who could fill them. Although Wernick 
described the email as out of the blue. It wasn't unusual for her to contact We Charity. She had consulted with the organization on several occasions over the years. In the 2015 federal election, Justin Trudeau's platform included a plan to develop a youth service program akin to the U.S. Peace Corps. When he became prime minister, government bureaucrats made several attempts to get the program off the ground with no real success. Wernick often called on We Charity throughout this period to learn from the organization's past successes in this area. The first time came in October 2017, when she visited the charity's offices in Toronto and briefed senior staff on what was happening with the program. By 2018, the government had launched the design phase of something called the Canada Service Corps, which was a precursor to the CSSG on a smaller scale. As part of this effort, We Charity received an $887,155 grant to beta test different approaches that would inform how the government designed its program. Those test approaches exceeded benchmarks, so a year later, ESDC asked for a concept paper on how the government could create a national framework engaging diverse youth in service activities. We Charity delivered the paper, but nothing came of it. Fast forward to April 2020. Wernick presented a concept with the lofty goals and catchy buzzwords that both governments and charities have a fondness for. It was a program intended to generate skills development opportunities in an anemic job market, subsidize students in a time of social disruption, bolster communities through volunteer work, and support nonprofits suffering badly in the harsh economic climate. It ultimately became the CSSG. The vision was for a government-led initiative implemented through partnerships with multiple nonprofits. As it was explained to Craig, different organizations would handle different aspects of the program. One would manage a digital platform. Another would facilitate payments to participants. Yet another would recruit volunteers and so forth. But Wernick said that in her view, We Charity had to take a lead role to get the program off the ground. The government, she said, could not run an initiative of this scale on its own. The aim was to launch the program in late May. This was the first red flag. It was already late April. After two elections and five years of talk of a large-scale national youth service program, Wernick's department was being asked to pull together a massive program in just weeks. She made clear to Craig that she didn't know how to accomplish that Herculean task. She invited him to submit a proposal with the organization's best thinking on how such a program might work and how we charity could contribute. Many people would have said no. But as I have learned in my years as a board member, the Kilberger brothers seemed to revel, annoyingly so, in impossible deadlines. 
Sometimes, though, the race does not go to the swift. Ironically, this potential lifeline for thousands of young people in a time of crisis became a death sentence for a charity whose raison d'etre was helping those very same people become their best selves. As Craig would later tell the House of Commons Standing Committee on Finance, commonly known as FINA, there are days when we wish we had never answered the phone on April 19th. Why we, why not we? Over the course of the so-called We Charity scandal, many people have asked me why the government approached the organization to administer the CSSG in the first place. To those of us familiar with the work of We Charity, it is a baffling question because the organization's core mission involved doing just what the government hoped to do here, facilitating volunteerism by young people. This mandate was even at the heart of the organization's slogan, We Makes Doing Good Doable. The slogan seems not to have worked as well as the branding experts hoped. Despite We Charity's long history and trustworthy reputation, many Canadians really don't know what it did and why it was only natural for the government to come knocking. This lack of understanding has led some to assume that the charity was trying to build a name off the back of the CSSG. Even a documentary on CBC's Fifth Estate in February 2021 invited viewers to ask, why did We Charity get that contract? In reality, We Charity wasn't using the CSSG as a stepping stone to anything. The organization was called upon by the government because of its expertise in implementing large-scale initiatives designed to encourage young people to volunteer. It had been doing this for more than two decades. Back in 1999, the Ontario government of Conservative Premier Mike Harris decided that every high school student in the province had to complete a minimum of 40 hours of volunteer activity to graduate. The Conservatives changed the diploma requirements to this effect, but failed to put in place any system or programs to facilitate volunteerism, creating chaos for students, teachers, schools, and nonprofits. Students had no idea how to find placements. Schools and school boards were ill-equipped to assist, and teachers were expected to define what volunteerism looked like and how it would be implemented and tracked. Meanwhile, charities were overwhelmed with young people showing up without the skills to do more than stack boxes. These volunteers were more often a burden than a blessing for nonprofits, which had to come up with things for them to do and divert staff to train and supervise them. I talked about those days with Donna Cansfield, a former Ontario Liberal cabinet minister and member of the provincial parliament, who was chair of the Toronto District School Board, TDSB, at the time. She vividly recalled the confusion 
What does that mean? How do you do it? What should you be engaged in? What kind of charity? What kind of work? I mean, there was no program that went with it. It was just, you're going to do it. Though still a young and relatively small organization, Free the Children approached Cansfield and David Reed, then Director of Education for the TDSB, offering to help. They had a proposal for a program that could be included in the grade 10 civics curriculum. It would guide students on how to design their own service opportunities. Mark and Craig came in with their handbook, Take Action, A Guide to Active Citizenship. Just teenagers at the time, Cansfield remembered, and David and I looked at it and said, wow, this is awesome. We thought the approach Craig and Mark pitched was perfect. And away we went, putting it in every grade 10 class in the Toronto District School System. At the time, Aaron Barton was a part-time student, also working as one of the first employees at Free the Children. She went on to have a decades-long career at WE. Her journey began in high school, where she was deeply involved in student council and leadership. When she was 17, her school's chaplain handed her a Free the Children brochure and suggested that she start her chapter. So she reached out to Mark and Craig and began attending weekly meetings with the organization before starting her own group within the Dufferin Peel Catholic School District. Her early involvement would change the course of her life. Following the devastating 2010 earthquake in Haiti, she moved to the country and oversaw We Charity's sustainable development projects, which served more than 20,000 people. She also adopted two children while there. Fast forward a decade, and Barton was voted one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women by the Women's Executive Network. She was one of the unstoppable forces behind the success of We Charity. Back in 1999, though, she was just starting her journey. We were called on by Ontario school boards asking for help. There's not enough volunteer placements for kids, Aaron recalled. We were being called on to offer support because the government hadn't consulted with nonprofit organizations to understand whether or not there were sufficient opportunities for those under 16 to do volunteer work. And we were going to face a whole cohort of youth who were not going to graduate high school because they hadn't fulfilled this 40-hour requirement. Working with the TDSB and Nelson Education, Canada's top educational publisher, Free the Children developed a program called Take Action. It included a textbook on service for use in the classroom, school speaking tours to educate kids about service opportunities, mentorship and coaches to help students build and launch their own volunteer activities, and a system that allowed teachers to track volunteer hours. Mary Eileen Donovan, a former We Charity board member and one-time superintendent with the Toronto Catholic District School Board, remembered her introduction to take action. 
I listened to the idea and arranged for Mark to come in to present to the Education Council, which is a group of superintendents, the director and the deputy director. It was a group of about 20 of us, all in charge of schools and all knowing full well that we were going to have to help schools implement and encourage those 40 volunteer hours. He came in and explained that Take Action could go into schools working through the civics program. I always felt Wee's brilliance was understanding where the gaps were. It knew how to help the teachers and was a tremendous help to the kids. And when the program took off, it was a great success in our schools for the principals, the teachers, and most importantly, the students. This programming and educational support system around it came to be known as We Schools, and it spread like wildfire. We Charity lit a spark in young people's minds that said, I can do this. And that lit a spark across school systems around the country and beyond. The charity engaged so many young people in civic action and into making a difference through its programming in schools. It has also done extraordinary things around the world. I know this because as a school board trustee, I witnessed it, Cansfield told me. By 2020, more than 18,000 schools in Canada, the U.S., the U.K., and the Caribbean had adopted the We School service learning approach, including its youth mental health programs and indigenous youth leadership training programs. The service learning model at the heart of We Schools became so popular that it eventually came to the attention of the college board. A mainstay of U.S. post-secondary education, the college board is made up of over 6,000 universities, colleges, and other educational institutions. Each year, the college board helps more than 7 million students prepare for a successful transition to college and oversees the SAT exam system. It also created the Advanced Placement AP program, a national initiative that allows American high school students to take courses for post-secondary credit and enhances qualification for entry into college and university programs. The College Board was interested in building a service learning component into its AP courses. It vetted organizations from around the world to assist and eventually selected We Charity. The AP with We Service was born. The program weaves volunteerism and community service into the core curriculum of all AP courses. A science student could learn about biology by testing water quality in her community. A Spanish course might include helping new immigrants fill out government forms. Computer science students might supplement their coursework by coding apps for charities. The AP with We Service became the first on-transcript recognition of service for American students applying to U.S. colleges. In the 2018-19 academic year, it reached all 50 states. But We Charity's experience with large-scale initiatives 
went well beyond schools and college readiness. In 2017, for example, long before the CSSG, the charity partnered with Heritage Canada to celebrate the country's 150th birthday. We Day Canada took place on Parliament Hill on Canada Day weekend. While most other Canada Day events focused on the past 150 years, We Day Canada looked to the future and celebrated the next generation. We Day began in 2007 as a way to acknowledge the contribution of young people who were taking action through We Schools programming and encouraged them to do even more. In a culture increasingly focused on material wealth, it was an event that honored acts of kindness and giving. It wanted to bring young people together to celebrate their altruism and reward them in a unique and fun way for the work they had done over the school year. From its modest debut at the Rico Coliseum in Toronto, We Day, one part pep rally, one part motivational speech, and one part rock concert, grew into a Canadian export success story. By 2020, We Day events were taking place annually in 18 cities in Canada, the US and the UK. In total, there have been more than 130 We Days, and they've welcomed approximately 1.5 million young people. To transmit that energy and message even further, We Day primetime specials aired regularly in both Canada and the US, garnering millions of viewers. And the best part was the catch line, you can't buy a ticket to We Day. Instead, the only way young people could earn the right to attend was by performing one local and one global act of service. According to We Charity Records, students completed over 40 million hours of service as verified by their teachers. Unlike almost every other charity-hosted event, We Day was cause-inclusive, meaning attendees were under no pressure to volunteer for or give money to We Charity. On stage, presenters and performers touted hundreds of other causes that had nothing to do with the work of WE. This kind of lateral co-promotion is all but unheard of in a sector where every nonprofit is in competition for a finite pool of government grants and donor dollars. The event's high-profile speakers and A-list celebrities spoke about their own passions in a way that motivated students. For example, comedian and actor Seth Rogen talked about raising awareness for Alzheimer's through his nonprofit HFC. Actor Charlize Theron promoted UN AIDS and shared her painful childhood experiences seeing HIV affect people she knew growing up in South Africa. These A-listers also champion the service of young people in a way that made it cool to give back. The implicit message was that you did not need to be a star athlete or the best looking kid in class 
to be popular. Instead, some of the most exciting people in the world said they were inspired by you. As Prince Harry put it, during a speech at Weeday UK in Wembley Arena several years ago, some people don't think it's cool to help others. Personally, I think it's the coolest thing in the world. In between the stars, musical acts, and renowned activists like Malawa Yousafzai and David Suzuki were ordinary, or more accurately, extraordinary young speakers. Transgender youth, young people with physical challenges or living with HIV, First Nations people, these were speakers the student audience could relate to, be inspired by, and hope to emulate. For me, We Day was less a platform and more a springboard for activists and activism. In writing this book, I listened to many young people tell me what We Day meant to them. Their message, almost entirely ignored by Canadian journalists and politicians in the aftermath of the CSSG scandal, is one of accomplishment and promise. For them, it was invariably the case that the activists outstripped the celebrity performers in terms of real impact. Testimonial, Isa Abid. Isa Abid is the founder of Isa's Teddy Bear Foundation, a nonprofit organization that serves local and global communities. She's been a lifelong advocate for children's rights and has received the Sovereign's Medal for Volunteers. I found my voice through volunteering when I was seven years old. It was around this time that I took a trip to Pakistan with my family and witnessed the intergenerational effects of poverty. Children around my age were cleaning houses and collecting bread that was being disposed of. I returned to a life of privilege measured against what I experienced overseas, and I knew that I had to make a difference. One thing that stood out to me was that up until that point, I had never volunteered alongside anyone my age. In grade seven, that all changed. I moved to a newly opened school and helped create the first week club there. Every week, we would brainstorm ideas, organize fundraisers, and advance our personal commitments to our community. The turnout was always really inspiring, and students from every grade came out to support the club. It was also a safe haven for many, since students knew they could drop in and sit with other people who really cared about each other and the world. One day, when I was in the 10th grade, we were asked to take action on an initiative of our choice for a civics project. I was thrilled. I could finally create an all-encompassing project that would allow me to make service activities more meaningful for and accessible to students. I founded a grassroots nonprofit that works to provide physical and emotional support to children in need. Since 2013, Isa's Teddy Bear Foundation has sent hundreds 
of thousands of bear hugs in the form of teddies, warm clothing, school supplies, books, and good food to under-resourced children around the world. Through this work, I've learned the critical importance of empathy, compassion, and understanding. Once we have the tools to help ourselves, we can help others. Teaching these skills to children during their formative years can make the world a better place. And once these values become ingrained, they can stick with you for a lifetime. Isa Abbott has been almost a lifelong volunteer for many causes, and she was very involved with her WE Club in high school and continued to advise them after her graduation. Now a recent graduate of McMaster University, Abbott lives in Toronto and operates an international nonprofit called Isa's Teddy Bear Foundation, which she started while in high school. Abbott and her friends found that their WE Club offered something intangible that arrived at just the right time in their young lives, inclusiveness and empathy. And WE Day was a source of perpetual inspiration to keep doing more. WE Day is something I think students are really going to miss out on now, she said. WE Day was one of a kind. I just remember every time we would leave, on the bus back home, or on the train back home, everyone would just be oozing with so much positivity and excitement for giving back. And I think that's the coolest thing ever. Susan Boyce, a former We Charity board member and executive with both CBC and CTV, expressed similar sentiments when she spoke to me about her decision to broadcast We Day on television. She told me that she went to bat for the event because she believed that young people would respond to its positive message about making a difference. And it was also an opportunity to export this piece of Canada, she said, to the world. But she encountered resistance from some who thought it might not be fun programming that would attract young viewers. Boyce felt vindicated in her decision to push because even with the sad news of the charity's closure in Canada, we has changed things and influenced a generation. I was at We Day Canada on Parliament Hill in 2017. I brought my then six-year-old son and my parents along as well. What we experienced with the crowd of over 10,000 people was a celebration of the possibility of a bright future. These kids were fired up and the energy was contagious, even for those on the stage. One particularly stirring highlight was a rare public appearance by tragically hip frontman Gord Downey, a true Canadian icon just three months before he died of brain cancer. We leave behind the first 150 years, Downey said from the stage. The ones with one big problem, trying to wipe out our indigenous people, to take their minds and hearts, to give them choice, become white or get lost. He spoke passionately about the need for young Canadians 
to learn the history of residential schools where children suffered horrendous emotional and physical abuse. He told the story of Cheney Winjack, a 12-year-old indigenous boy who died of hunger and exposure trying to flee the abuse of the residential school he was forced to attend. Cheney's sisters, Pearl and Daisy, stood side by side with Downey as they performed an indigenous song about reconciliation. Among the many other speakers that day were Governor General David Johnston and Lieutenant General retired Romeo Dallaire, both of whom captivated the audience. At one point, Dallaire, a Canadian hero who is revered worldwide for his efforts to prevent genocide in Rwanda in 1994, spontaneously took off his tie and jubilantly threw it into the crowd, an expression of sheer joy from an otherwise somber figure. You are the future, he told the younger people in the crowd. We're setting up your future. It's in your hands now. You're the generation without borders. You are global. You're communicating real-time globally. You'll Skype anybody in the world. You will influence directly every human being. And so, you can be a generation that says human rights is for all humans. For his part, Johnston seemed to feel the connection with his rapt audience. It feels like change. It feels like hope. It feels like the Canada we desire and the one we deserve, a place of peace, respect, equality, fairness, and creativity, he told the young faces looking back at him. How do we build that Canada? You're the answer to this question, young people like you, who are working today for a greater country tomorrow. We Day Canada took place on the doorstep of the federal government and left an impression. Yes, we knew how to harness celebrity star power to full effect. Yes, we knew how to handle large-scale and complex logistics. But more importantly, we put its connection with young people on display. That ability, not political cronyism, is why Wernick called on We Charity and why We Charity felt compelled to respond. All this history would be largely ignored in the soon-to-unfold controversy over the CSSG. Reluctant Warriors Many people believe that the CSSG was the brainchild of the Kilbergers, or that they pulled on every available political string to make it happen. Pithy soundbites and media headlines fed this narrative through the summer of 2020. MP Charlie Angus of the NDP repeatedly claimed that we was massively overextended and in economic freefall, and that the CSSG was a bailout package for the Kilbergers. Conservative MP Pierre Polyev joined the chorus, stating that Craig had a proposal ready for Warnick when she reached out, almost as though he was expecting her call. A Toronto Star headline read, How We Charity's Youth Pitch Worked Its Way Through Trudeau's Government. 
The Globe and Mail followed with, We Charity pitched to Moreau's office prior to Trudeau announcement included student service. The program, the story goes, was a lifeline for a charity facing a diminishing platform and fading fortunes. Prime Minister Trudeau, Finance Minister Bill Morneau, and others in the Liberal Party allegedly schemed to help their supposed friends at We Charity secure the lucrative contract as payback for appearances on the We Day stage, speaking fees to the Prime Minister's mother and brother, and expenses associated with trips Morneau and his family took to We Charity International Development Projects. None of this, as you will learn in this chapter and those that follow, has any relation to the facts. Inside We Charity, there was much debate as to whether to answer the government's call by submitting a proposal. Far from jumping at the opportunity, the organization pondered how to respond by taking a series of deep breaths with some size and brow-whipping thrown in for good measure. Warnick wanted We Charity to help launch a massive national youth service program in a matter of months, a feat the government had not managed to accomplish in four years, and during a pandemic, no less. For its part, We Charity had just laid off scores of people and was overstretched handling a series of pressing domestic and international commitments. Just what was everyone doing? At home, the We Schools team was working around the clock to move the organization's service learning curriculum online for its 18,000 school partners and develop new options relevant to the pandemic, such as ways for students to support frontline healthcare workers and connect with seniors and other vulnerable people. In addition, the team was developing a wide range of COVID-appropriate content with teams of educators filming daily virtual lessons for teachers from kindergarten to grade 12. WE's mental health programming was also a focus. When lockdowns began, the relatively new WE Wellbeing program quickly released a series of mental health toolkits focused on easy at-home exercises to reduce stress and anxiety. The WE Wellbeing Playbook, which had just been published in February, was given a COVID makeover and re-released for free on Amazon. Written in collaboration with mental health professionals, the book contained tips, reflection pieces, exercises, and activities to help kids and adults enhance their own mental health and the well-being of those around them. On top of all that, the WE team was producing a series of well-being podcasts hosted by Sophie Gregor Trudeau. Meanwhile, the charity's international programs team was in overdrive, coordinating a logistically challenging global relief effort. Even though most expatriate staff members had returned home at the start of the pandemic, in-country national staff in the nine nations where WE Charity operated were working hard to support education outreach, teaching the benefits of social distancing and mask wearing 
and deliver supplies. The largest pandemic response took place in Kenya, where We Charity had built significant infrastructure and community relationships over decades. Partnering with World Medical Relief, the charity dispatched shipping containers loaded with masks, gloves, medical equipment, and other necessities in mid-April. Another shipment with a ventilator and 10,000 KN95 masks was delivered in May. By the end of the summer, an estimated $8 million in health supplies had arrived at We Charity and partner facilities in the country. Similar efforts were underway in Ecuador, where a public awareness campaign brought COVID information to remote communities deep in the Amazon. And in Haiti, We Charity helped install solar panels at a hospital in Hinch, ensuring blackouts did not threaten the lives of COVID patients on ventilators. On the ground in Kenya, two WE-funded regional health facilities, Baraka Hospital and Kishan Health Center, anchored COVID health measures in the region. These two facilities already provided medical care to more than 125,000 people in Narok and Bomet counties along the edge of the Maasai Mara Reserve. Now the doctors and nurses working there prepared for a potential outbreak. At the nearby Wee College, Baraka staff turned empty classrooms into makeshift wards and operating theaters. The college was essentially transformed into a backup health center to handle non-COVID medical issues. Beside the college, a field hospital, like something out of MASH, stood ready to serve as a COVID isolation ward. The huge green tents had previously been used for groups of young volunteers participating in Me to We trips, a poignant reminder that the social enterprise existed to support the charity. We Charity was also spreading the word about COVID to remote communities. A massive education and outreach campaign provided 300,000 people with information about the disease and how to prevent its spread. Our people were literally going house by house, talking to people. Have you heard of COVID? Do you know how it's transmitted? Do you understand what it looks like if you get symptoms? And do you understand what you're supposed to do if you have that? Robin Wizawadi recounted, driver Charles Kamani even mounted loudspeakers on the roof of a land cruiser he had once used to transport trip participants, converting it into a mobile public service announcement platform. And later in the spring, staff created a radio PSA and an SMS campaign that delivered COVID-related information to the mobile phones of nearly 4,000 people. Elsewhere, education teams drove hundreds of kilometers a day to reach remote communities scattered across thousands of square kilometers of Savannah. Having traveled those bumpy makeshift roads myself, although in my case, with the leisure to stop and photograph cheetahs along the way, I understood what it must have been like to try to reach communities we all loved before the virus did. The spring rainy season made things worse 
as dirt roads turned into tire-grabbing bogs. But staff persisted, distributing 4,000 bars of hand soap, countless packets of vegetable seeds to address food insecurity, and 35,000 dehydrated meals donated by the Unstoppable Foundation. And in the ensuing months, the organization reported delivering over 1.5 million meals to support communities in the region. This was the backdrop against which we charity had to decide whether to accept the invitation to submit a proposal for administering the CSSG. Undeterred, Dalal Al-Wahidi, the executive director, was championing the opportunity. For her, it came from a sense of duty. A Palestinian born in Kuwait during the Gulf War, Dalal fled to the Gaza Strip with her family in 1991. As a child, she saw the terrible impact of conflict, political instability, and violence. She experienced marginalization and deprivation studying through power outages and living through airstrikes. In Gaza, Dalau went to a school for refugee children and eventually earned a scholarship to the United World College in Norway. In 1998, she was one of two students from the college selected for a scholarship to Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario more than 9,000 kilometers away from her family. When she graduated from Trent, she landed at We Charity, where an internship started a 20-year journey to the head table steering the organization. Dalau's intimate familiarity with the more brutal side of life, a quintessentially Canadian immigrant story, made it impossible for her to imagine refusing to contribute in a time of need. She explained to me that despite the uncertainties about how the CSSG could be implemented in such a short period of time, she felt no confusion about the benefits it would confer on young Canadians. Imagine how challenging it must be to deal with the pandemic and at the same time with the prospect of not being able to find work so you can continue to go to school. And hardest hit would be young people living in marginalized or disadvantaged communities, she said. The CSSG was a lifeline for young Canadians in an unprecedented time. We were uniquely positioned to rapidly implement, and I was confident we could prioritize diversity and those most in need. Those were the people she wanted to help. To her mind, these were reasons to move mountains. Like Dalau, many others within the charity believed that the beating heart of the organization had always been its ability to overcome obstacles in its mission to inspire young people to serve. With every meeting on the CSSG, the executive leadership team offered creative solutions for how the program could be achieved. If we charity did not step up when the government wanted to help young people make it through a crisis by volunteering, who would? And yes, the CSSG also presented a chance for the charity to rehire some laid-off colleagues 
and get them back to doing what the organization did best. The CSSG came as a light of hope, Delau recalled. We can build something, get people motivated to do good. We're good at building programs and creating impact, and we've proven this again and again. In Delau's confident voice, I heard echoes of thoughts shared with me by former Prime Minister Kim Campbell in a series of conversations we had for this book. Campbell, the nation's first and so far only female Prime Minister, has an easy, welcoming manner that made me feel like I was chatting with an old friend. But as is clear in her foreword, she does not mince words, and she has been an outspoken advocate for many causes in her post-political life, particularly in support of women's rights and empowerment. Campbell told me how she attracted We Charity's progress from Free the Children to the global empowerment movement it has become. She has seen the organization in action overseas, having taken a Meet a We volunteer trip with her sister, during which she joined the First Lady of Kenya, Margaret Kenyatta, at the grand opening of We College in rural Narok County. And she has seen We Charity motivate young people at home too. I could clearly sense the pride she felt when she talked about how a Canadian charity had made a big difference in the world. Her point to me was simple. There was a time when it was commonly understood by all Canadians that if the government needed your help, you answered the call to serve. That was a lesson she received from her parents, who both served in the Second World War. In her view, we charity should have been applauded for taking on the ill-fated CSSG rather than put through the political ringer. But I've got too far ahead in the story. Battle-weary Mark and Craig were less easily convinced about the wisdom of moving forward. You could hardly fault them. They had closely followed the government's prolonged but ultimately unsuccessful efforts to establish a major national youth service program and they had just ended 25 years of nonstop work by having to lay off countless employees because of the pandemic. There were personal considerations as well. For decades, people had been telling them to slow down and make time for themselves and their families. I have seen firsthand how much they sacrificed for the sake of We Charity, and like many others, I've often felt the demands they placed on themselves and others were unreasonable. You don't always have to run like your hair is on fire, I said to Craig and Mark on more than one occasion. Every time, they would just shrug and laugh it off. When Craig's first child was born in 2017, he spent just five days with him before flying off to Kenya to be at project sites for a month. The intervening years were more of the same, with in excess of 300 days a year of travel. It was time he would never get back. Craig was determined not to miss so much of the early childhood of his second son due in June 2020, and that was a factor in his thinking about the CSSG. 
He told me no one would have blamed us for saying no thank you. I just want to sit still and hold my son in my hands. For Mark, the summer of 2020 was the first in two decades when he did not need to be overseas almost every day. With his wife and their two children, he was looking forward to a more relaxing period focused on family time. He had spent much of 2018 and 2019 grappling with everything from a tense situation in Kenya to spurious allegations from the media outlet Canada Land back at home. More on those topics later. The bottom line is that he had earned a break. So between April 19th and 21st, 2020, there was a great deal of soul-searching as the Kilbergers and we executives considered the pros and cons of saying yes to the government. This had been described to me as a series of difficult conversations, often lasting many hours, because the initial question was only whether to submit a proposal of interest to continue the dialogue with the civil service. The charity's board members were not involved in these deliberations. So I was not in the room or on the Zoom when the Kilbergers and the senior leadership team eventually got to yes. If you had asked me beforehand, though I would have told you that yes was inevitable. Partly, this is because the Kilbergers are incapable in their bones of shrieking from a challenge that others might view as insurmountable. And partly, it's because of the ethos of the organization, a philosophy best captured in the Quechuan term, Minga. For years, Craig and Mark have shared the story of a trip to a village in Ecuador, where they heard this term for the first time. They have featured it in books they've written, in their columns in The Globe and Mail, and in speeches they've delivered at universities and events. Minga does not have an easy English translation. It refers to a social contract in which community members gather to complete a large task in a short amount of time to fulfill a collective responsibility. A traditional chief in the village explained to Craig and Mark that in times of need, she calls for a minga, and everyone stops in their tracks and comes together to work for the benefit of all. A sort of barn raising in the Amazon. Whatever the task, building a hut, constructing a school, or creating an entire village, you do not say no when asked to help. The CSSG was a minga and thus not something the organization could walk away from. So after much thought, the charity dove in head first. We did not know it was the shallow end. Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, visit whatwelost.com and discover the real story behind the CSSG controversy.